was bizarre to look back and think about how easy of a road it is going to be for a team like Oklahoma to consistently be in the playoff. Welcome to the Mainline Podcast. I am Adam Jacquez. Tonight, only Corbin in the house. Tyler is on vacation. What do you think Tyler is up to at this exact moment as we're recording? I was relying on you. I mean, for the last time you missed, you had about 20 different reasons that uh, he wasn't <laughs> going to attend. So I came fully prepared for you to have another list. So I'm really disappointed to already start the pod. <laughs> so I don't have a list of 20, but I do have something that I think is maybe not too far off from what he's actually doing. I'm I'm pretty confident that he's probably on a golf course right now. He's walking around by himself, muttering something about Tiger Woods to himself. Uh, but uh, unlike him, we are here together. We're not talking to ourselves. We're talking to each other. And there's a not a ton going on with OU Athletics. It's the end of the, the calendar year for, or I guess the academic year for sports, rather. No more games going on until what soccer in August. Yeah. So it is straight up the off season. And really there's not a ton of football news going on right now. I guess you could say Trey Bradford just recently within the last hour or so is officially on the roster at OU. Although that has felt like something that's been complete for at least two weeks now. Yep. I don't really know it. Corbin, if you have any thoughts there, as far as anything else that needs to be added or said, it's, feels like it's already been said at this point. Yeah, not in addition to what we mentioned last week. I mean, there was a pretty uneventful transfer move for him. I mean, it seemed like a done deal from the day he entered the portal. Um, but again, I think that fills that running room up. We'll see if it, you know, changed anything with a guy like Marcus Major. Does he end up, you know, hitting the transfer portal and head the other direction? Um, but yeah, that's kind of seemed like a done deal for a while now. So uh, it seems like a solid pickup for Lincoln Riley and DeMarco Murray and company. And uh, we'll see how much playing time he gets next year. I think Stacy Wilkins, he uh, transferred, I don't know, maybe within the last week or so, but he's the type of guy that I was mentioning probably a few weeks back that I think you have to be the more concerned about is, hey, which of these types of depth guys might potentially leave Marcus Majors in that category for me, simply because guys are impatient. I think, you know, if, if they're smart, they'll look at it and go, hey, you know, it, I'm just a few plays away from being a major contributor, no pun intended, but um, I I think young guys don't always look at it that way. You know, they really just want to get on the field and and major has been here for two years now. Redshirt his first year played a little bit last year and he's still not, you know, projected to be a major contributor. So interesting to see where that might go, but uh, really that's the only news item uh, that's really going on right now with OU sports. So uh, we did want to dive a little bit deeper into the playoff discussion. A lot of content coming out over the last week about that and the implications of that, how it might look, um, everyone's general thoughts on that. Uh, Corbin, after letting it all kind of settle in and marinate uh, for you, like what is what is still sticking out to you as far as the uh, suggested model uh, for the playoff going forward? I do think it does benefit college football as a whole. Um, I think it gives more opportunities for teams to be a part of the playoff, which it may take a few years, but I do think will create parity for the, you know, championship race. Um, I think you give it five or 10 years. I don't think we're going to be seeing the top four teams, three teams that really have a shot at it every single year. I do think it diversifies that. Um, 
I think it it benefits the the teams that are just always on the outside looking in, which there are a lot of, and it benefits the teams that have been in the playoff almost every single year because now they have even more of a cushion to get in every year. Um, where, on the other hand, maybe something I don't like is if the idea goes through that the top four seeds get a bye and then the top five through, what is that, five through eight um, get the home game. That sounds like a disservice to the top four teams, in my opinion, uh, to not have a home playoff game, to miss that revenue, to miss that excitement. Um, I think Andy Staples was mentioning it earlier this week. He was like, as soon as those top four seeds see what's taking place on those campuses for that week of a playoff game at home, they're absolutely going to want to be a part of that. So even if it starts off in a way where those top four seeds don't have a home game to kick things off, I would bet that probably changes in some way, shape, or form. Does that mean they go to a 16-team playoff? I don't know. But I just can't see the Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia, Oklahoma's of the world just being okay with teams that are finishing worse than they do having a home playoff game. I just, I, I just don't see how that's going to be a positive for them. Um, but outside of that, it still sounds like there's, you know, some work to be done. Um, but I do think as a whole, from the teams to the fans, to the NCAA, to ESPN, you know, all the revenue being made, I, I do think it's probably a, a win for just about everybody involved. It's frustrating from an OU perspective, because just looking at the way things have gone over the last couple of years, OU, you know, knock on wood is winning the, uh, the big 12 championship, you know, back to back to back to back years. Uh, I may have missed a back in there, but, um, that basically just guarantees that most cases OU is probably in that top four, um, you know, having the, uh, conference, you know, top conference champions be in those spots really helps elevate no OU. So even if OU is maybe fifth or sixth you know, ranked normally, but as long as they win the big 12, they might bump up a spot. Um, I think it certainly helps to uh, balance it so you don't get three SEC teams in the top four or, or anything like that. But then, like you mentioned, the way it's currently projected is it takes away that home game opportunity for the city of Norman and the fans of OU. And I mean, we haven't gotten to a point yet where OU's won that first playoff game and fans have had to make you know that uh, choice to go to two potential games. And now we're looking at, hey, maybe there's three games and really the only one that could potentially be close is the Cotton Bowl. That's that's a lot of money because it is not cheap to be traveling to New Orleans or Miami or L.A. or anywhere where these games are going to be played. Yeah, that's hard enough for our fan bases is. I mean, we both worked you know on the ticket side of things and it's just I don't know about you, but especially on the Sooner Club side of things, it's just you just hear it's expensive. I mean, people are paying, you know upwards of thousands to tens of thousands of dollars to, to sit in some of the areas, you know, in that stadium. And then on top of that, you got to pay for the tickets to these games. And then on top of that, you got to pay for the travel and the hotel. And so, yeah, I mean, perfect case scenario is that, you know, we get more games in Dallas and the NCAA tries to do a better job of um, centrally locating some of these matchups. So the fans don't have as much of an expense, but I just, when you look at the big bowls that are going to be a part of this type of playoff, it's just, it's just not ideal in a sense that there are enough of them around that, you know, you can really help out on that front because like you said, if it's not the cotton bowl, that's tough. Uh, Cause everywhere else you're going to have to travel, you know, at least a few hours of a flight to get there. Just thinking about it from a ticket perspective, the playoff games were, I think around 175 uh, mm-hmm. a seat and uh, the first time we went uh, as far as the Rose Bowl, I mean, those tickets were 
nearly impossible to to get because everyone wanted to go. But then the next year there was quite a few for the Orange Bowl, and the year after that there was quite a few available for the Peach Bowl. Um, and I think people were maybe holding out or, or saying, "Hey, like I, I don't think we have too much of a chance. I'll I'll see if we make it to the national championship game." Um, so it'll be interesting to see how people um, you know, judge that perspective there on which one do you put your money on? Cause I, you really can't go to all three. Cause I mean, 175 for the first game, 175 for the second game, travel to both of those games. And then your national championship game, you're looking at like 400 plus just for the worst seat in the building at that point. Yeah. I remember uh, there were, I think it was for the orange bowl because it wasn't sold out. I remember that. Um, but our donors were getting the uh, face value price tickets but they could go to third party and get those tickets way cheaper than they could get them from OU athletics. So um, that's not me condoning don't donate to the sooner club. That's just factual of how it played out in that situation. Um, Because the the same thing I told the donors, like, sure, you're paying less to go to, you know, go to Florida and purchase them on the third party market. If the game was in the cotton bowl, you'd be paying way less than what the third party market was going for. So like it was the year before in the Rose bowl. Correct. Yep. So yeah, it stinks for the fans. You just got to wonder, like, how as big of a brand as OU is, it's not one of, like, the the major, you know, I don't think of it as, as some of the Big Ten schools that are graduating, you know, 30,000, 40,000 students every single fall, uh, every single spring, excuse me. So you just wonder how our fans will be able to do that and continue to, to travel the way they do. Um, but we'll see. Time will tell. I, I think – a home game, maybe even two home games moving forward for the, for the playoff would probably be beneficial just for the fans' sake. Yeah, I think initially it's going to be really difficult to get what the fans really want in squeezing out some of these bowl games, or at least until the semifinal round and then the actual national championship game. Um, but even if you look at it now, you've got, what, four games, I guess, between the second round and the semifinal. So four potential sites for uh, these bowl games. And you've got six New Year's, six bowls, essentially. Mm -hmm. So who gets squeezed out at that point? Yeah. And I think it will probably be a progression over the years of like slowly, slowly, like knocking some of those, those out. Um, And like it does now. Well, I, I don't know. It just seems like, you know, you look at it in the years when the Peach Bowl has it and the Orange Bowl has it, then that makes the Fiesta and the Cotton Bowls feel so small and insignificant. And I think that's just going to get more magnified with a 12-team playoff to the point where, you know, you're looking at the Cotton Bowl on a year that they don't have a playoff game of getting teams maybe 13 and 14 at best. Mm. That's, that's not the juiciest matchup. No, I, I would just think they would continue to rotate them, though. In my opinion, probably perfect scenario for a 12-team playoff is like, okay, keep the one through four seeds as a buy for the first round. You play it out to get to, what, eight then? That first round would, would lump everybody to eight. Then give the four, one through four seeds the, another home game. Like, there's their home game. And, make, and everybody else is going to have to travel and be on the road. And then you loop in those final three games the exact way you're doing them right now, and you just you rotate them through. Um, and I th- I do think that keeps all the Bulls happy, knowing that they're going to you know still get every two to three years you're getting in big matchups and potentially a national championship to go along with it. Um, so that I don't I wouldn't imagine that changes anytime soon. I would even say, hey, let's give seats one and two home field advantage seats three and four can go neutral Mm -hmm. and then maybe like mix and match. So like the first Mm -hmm. round, 
maybe some of your lower seeds um, are playing in a neutral site game at the Cotton Bowl or at the Peach Bowl or wherever. And maybe there's some marketing and some hype around those particular matchups that maybe have lower seed numbers. And it's more of, I don't want to call it like a wild card, you know, type of game like the NFL has. Those are thought of as exciting still, even though they're not necessarily the teams people are expecting to go very far, but maybe it's just say, Hey, this is your cool trip into the year. And if you win great, if you don't, you're still playing in Atlanta or New Orleans or wherever. Yeah. Yeah. Where do we sign up for the committee? We got this all figured out. <laughs> we, we sure do. Yeah. Um, overall though, I mean, specific to OU, I think there's a lot of different opinions. Pretty much everybody's a winner uh, from this new format, but how do you think that this affects OU specifically? I think it, it makes the the one random loss a year less important. Um, you're not going to see the fan base freaking out when we lose to a Kansas State or an Iowa State, you know, because we can we can handle a one game loss um, if we're if any any time, regardless of who the schedule is, how bad the Big Twelve is, any time OU's rolling in with a single loss on their schedule, they're going to be in the twelve team playoff, and most times. With two losses, they're going to be in the 12-team playoff, especially if they win the Big 12 championship. Um, so, do you like that? or Because I, in some ways, I kind of hate that because I do want perfection. And like that's as a fan growing up, that's kind of what I've demanded of the team. Yeah. That's, I, that's a hard adjustment. That's a good question. And I know I mentioned to you before the pod, I didn't give you a heads up, but I'll, I'll insert that trivia question in here. Okay? Okay. So since 2010... And I'm taking before the the college football playoff rankings. I'm taking the AP poll. How many years has OU finished the regular season outside of the top twelve? And what were those years? After the regular season. After the regular season, not after the bowl games. Okay. After the after the conference championship, if there was one, or just the completion of the regular season. You said since 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely would have been 2014. Yep, there's one. Uh. Potentially 2012. Ooh, nope, you're not right there. That's no, close. Okay. That's close. Uh, I know 13 was kind of close, but I think uh, after the win against uh, OSU in Bedlam, they moved up quite a bit. That gave them the Big 12 championship at that point. Yeah. You're in the um, right wheelhouse. 2011 was the uh, was the other. Oh, game. okay. I think I flipped 2012 and 2011. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So 2011 and 2014. So and and th- let's be honest, those early 2010s not an ideal time for OU football history, right? Like it was just yeah. kind of like, eh, we're okay. We're not good. We're not great. We're not bad. And still, you know, with, with everything that we went through, like Trevor Knight's team, when we were just figuring out a quarterback that seemed like that entire year mm-hmm. wouldn't have been in the playoff. Um, so it is, it, it's, it was bizarre to look back and think about how easy of a road it is going to be for a team like Oklahoma to consistently be in the playoff. Um, so, yeah, I think it's nothing but benefit, but I do agree with you. I, I appreciate the fact that we have a fan base that is dire to go undefeated every single year, that wants to burn down the entire city of Dorman every single time that we have, you know, a bad loss. Um, and this is just going to become a new reality where you just don't have to be perfect anymore. You need to be playing. It, it, almost, it almost goes into a true playoff format in every other sport where you got to be playing – the right way at the right time. You can handle an early season loss or two, but if towards the end of the year, and last year I think was a perfect example, 
I think OU was, would have competed with anybody in the playoff last year. Maybe not have beaten in Alabama, but they would have competed. And that's all you can ask for. So I, I think you'll start to see the landscape of college football change to what we're seeing with a lot of the professional sports is how can you get your team to peak at the right time, knowing if you're playing well late, regardless if you are number one seed or number 12 seed, if you're playing well late, you got a chance. And that's, I think you're going to start to see that things change on that front. Yeah. I kind of, I don't know. It'll be a hard adjustment for me because, you know, once OU loses a game, then it's like do or die. Like you have to impress the committee. You have to, you know, pedal to the metal in every way as a team. And so that I feel like is more engaging, uh, you know, at that point. And even before that point, sometimes one loss teams miss the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, it also really takes away from those fan bases that beat OU or, um, you know, other teams upsets, big, big upsets that happen throughout college football, because the next time app state beats Michigan, it's like, eh, whatever, just win the yeah. big 10. And yeah. uh, I mean, just, some, I'm just thinking back to the last couple of years with OU, every time Iowa state beats OU, every time K state beats OU, that's, that's a big deal for those fans. That's exciting for them. Yeah. I mean, that's the highlight of their season. And now it's kind of like, it's almost like whatever. I mean, are you still going to go to the playoffs regardless? Uh, it's just kind of, it's a different dynamic because upsets are so big in college football. Um, it doesn't really happen in any other sport. Like, can you name a big upset that happened in the NFL? No, not really. But yeah. I, do think, I do think it creates it creates excitement towards the end of the year for games that traditionally wouldn't matter. Whether this has something to do with OU or not for games that traditionally wouldn't matter between a number 12 team and a number 16 team, neither teams getting into a 14 playoff, but if you have a 12 team playoff, all of a sudden that game has humongous stakes. And so, um, yeah, I think that it does create more excitement towards the end of year games that expand beyond kind of that top six to eight, what we see right now of teams that actually have a legit shot of getting that final spot come time for the committees to select the, you know, the final four. Yeah. I think there's, there's far more, you know, pros with this model. Um, but it's certainly not a perfect model. There's going to be some things that'll change, maybe not for the better. Um, so it is, is the right move, uh, still, but, um, there's a, there's a lot that would have changed, you know, if we just look back at, at past history uh, within the Big 12 and some pretty big games that would have had, uh, I guess, really carried some some high stakes uh, for the playoff race. Uh, Corbin, I know you've you've written down a whole bunch of these. Um, if you want to walk us through a couple of them that you think really stand out to you as far as, um, you know, games within, I guess, the last 10 years or so where it would have been completely different if a playoff berth had probably been on the line for both teams. Yeah, there was more than I thought. And I don't want to go through, you know, all of the, the 10 decades or the, the past decade that we that I looked through. But um, but OU was involved in a lot of um, games that would have made or break, you know, them making it into a 12 team pay- playoff. And ironically enough, Oklahoma State was involved with a lot of those as well. And so uh, that kind of put a smile on my face, knowing like we could have knocked Oklahoma State out one, two three, four, I think there's a fifth one in there, maybe five times out of a 12-team playoff in the past decade. Like, that's that's fun. I like hearing that. Um, But, no, I mean, you can go back all the way to, like, 2011. You know, I think that 
was that the last time Oklahoma State won, or they had one, maybe one between that? 2014, uh, yeah. So, you know, we were coming in Stillwater ranked 14th. Oklahoma State was third. In this scenario, OSU would have been in a 12-team playoff regardless of what happens. But OU could have won that game and forced themselves into, you know, a 12-team playoff. I think of, uh, let's go back to 2016, Bedlam in Norman, uh, number 10 Oklahoma State versus number 9 Oklahoma that has monster implications for a 12 team playoff. Um, OSU was knocked out of the top 12 when they lost that. Um, 2016, number eight OU heading on the road with Kyler Murray to number 10 West Virginia. Whoever loses that, they're out of the playoff. And that's not even before the Big 12 championship because us in Texas, that following game for the Big 12 title, had the same implications. Um, and so I'm trying to think, you know, a couple here that maybe aren't OU related uh, last year. Great example. Um, Iowa State on the road uh, against Texas. Iowa State was 13. Texas was 17. You obviously saw Iowa State had a a decent jump uh, that forced them well into the top 12. But you got to think if UT wins that game, they're probably in the conversation. Iowa State's out of the the top 12 argument. So um, there's tons of games. And thinking back of those games were already exciting at the time. And then if you add the emphasis of what could have happened with a potential playoff berth on the line, a school getting knocked out of the top 12, um, I think some of those later in the year games, as I mentioned before, that didn't necessarily have huge implications on a playoff front, adding that to the equation, you take that all across the country, that should be pretty exciting um, for the past, you know, the last two, three weeks of the season. The game that stood out to me on this list is in 2017, OU versus TCU, uh, number five versus number six. And coming into that game, both teams had one loss already. So it was a playoff elimination game for for those two teams. But if there was a 12-team playoff, that's kind of more of just a don't show your hand too much game because the Big 12 championship game is two or three weeks um, out at that point. So I feel like, I don't know if that one loses luster at that point or if it's just kind of still a pretty solid game. Um, I, I don't think we see any more games of the century anymore. Hmm. Um, I mean, you'll still get some one versus two matchups, but it'll just be kind of like whatever. Like we'll just see them again in the playoffs if it's really the game of the century. Yeah, I mean, you could start looking at some of these because and I the game you're speaking of is a great example So to when the Big 12 tournament came around that year, TCU was back in the top 12. And so it's almost like this strange, like best of two series um, for how the Big 12 plays it out, right? Like you can split and probably both of those teams would have stayed in the top 12. But if you can win that early one and make sure that first one is out of the way, I don't necessarily think that that, that downplay is that first one because because you you circle around to when they followed up again, uh, OU was three win, lose, or draw that game, you're in the playoff. TCU was 11. They wouldn't have been 11 if they didn't have that loss earlier in the year. The roles would have been reversed. So I think the games are just as important because it it affords you a conference championship loss. Um, but with the way things are set up now, the conference champion automatically has a bid, and I believe are in the top six seeds. So that still has a kind of a different weight in itself, kind of the layout of the playoff. So yeah, there's there's going to be a lot, and I think at the end of the day, it'll be it'll be exciting. Um, it adds more intrigue to more games. Uh, hopefully, puts more eyeballs on the TVs, and hopefully, um, creates more parity in college football, which I think is something we all would be happy to see. You mentioned how many times OU would have knocked OSU out of playoff contention, uh, which 
almost all those games, OU was knocking OSU out of the Big 12 title race. So they, they also had that going on for them. But if you look back over the past 10 years, uh, Oklahoma State only makes the college football playoff once, which would have been that Brandon Whedon 2011 team, which is kind of crazy to think about because over the last decade or so, you, you think OU and OSU's been probably, or OSU's probably been the most consistent team outside of yep. OU, but only one playoff appearance. Hmm. Yeah. And, th- and then even looking beyond that, uh, there are, there's quite a few representatives from the Big 12 on the list. Baylor would have made it three times. Kansas State, surprisingly, in, uh, to me at least, would have yep. made it three times. And then TCU also would have made it three times. Well, uh, I and I think Iowa State. Twice. Once, twice. Iowa State. Iowa State would have made it once. Uh, so pretty much everybody but Texas, West Virginia, and Texas Tech, and Kansas, of course. Yeah, that's a given. But, I mean, what is that? 60% of your conference has made the playoffs in the past 10 yeah. years? Well, think about it last year, the exposure the Big 12 would have gotten if it was a 12-team format and both OU and Iowa State are hosting college football playoff games. That would have been awesome. Like the recognition for the Big 12, obviously you got to go out there and win, but that creates some excitement around a conference that needs it, to be frank. Um, And to host two of the four initial playoff games is humongous. So that would have been a, a huge win for the conference, even though none would have been in the top four um, to host oh, of those things. OU would have been the fourth team as the uh, one of the top ranked conference champions, I believe. But don't the con- don't the conference champions? Isn't that six of them? In their yeah, six? it is. But I think uh, oh, so. So like A and M wouldn't have been ahead of us. Yeah, A and M wouldn't have been ahead of us, and gotcha. then. Uh, whoever else was in there. That puts them at five. So yeah. Notre Dame would have been out too. So that would have put Oklahoma. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what it was. Yeah. Notre Dame would have dropped. Yeah. They're going to have to figure out something with Notre Dame. Yeah. Well, I, this was an interesting thing I heard on, uh, I think it was on the cover two podcast from Athlon. They basically were theorizing that, well, Notre Dame actually not being able to get into that top four is not that bad of a thing because if Notre Dame, which they have been top four, you know, several times and made the playoffs, if they're really that good of a team and they drop down to five, well, they have an easy matchup against number 12. They yep. get to play a home game with all the revenue. Yep. This should be a, a not a, a you know walk in the park, but a very winnable game for them and their roster. And then they're right back to where they started before, which was playing Alabama or somebody like that. So yeah. it's not necessarily the worst situation to be in. No, that that's that's the thing. I think if they don't adjust to make the second round home games for at least the top two seeds like you're talking about, but probably the top four. Yeah. That's going to become an issue because there's that. It's just too much missed revenue, too many, you know, opportunities for eyes to be on your university for those top four seats to be happy with a buy and no home game when five through nine, get a buy uh, five through eight, get a buy or get a, a home game. Excuse me. Um, so that's, that's going to have to be figured out. I just don't see how that makes any sense at all. Um, and at the end of the day, college football wants the blue bloods and the big boys to be happy. And I just don't see that being a case. Like I don't see Oklahoma being happy with like beating Iowa state and then Iowa state gets to host a playoff game and Oklahoma doesn't, I don't see Alabama being happy with beating Georgia to sometimes even twice. And then Georgia eventually hosting a playoff game and Alabama doesn't, that just doesn't add up to me. Uh, so they're going to have to do something there to figure that out. Cause there's just, I don't see how that works. 
Yeah, and, I, and there's also the situation of where all these neutral site games are going to be located. Yeah. Miami, Atlanta, New Orleans are all going to be closer to ACC and SEC uh, teams. Yeah. Um, you know, Fiesta and Rose Bowl are going to be closer to Pac-12 teams. Yeah. So really, it's just the Cotton Bowl, and I, I feel like there needs to be some type of tie-in um, similar to how the BCS was run where – you know, at least you knew where you were going to go and maybe it was going to be a favorable situation for, you know, your fans to be able to travel to. Why, why wouldn't they be able to do that? That seems like the perfect fit of, okay, since you're, since you're starting this, this whole thing starts with conference champions first. Those are the first six spots. That's a simple fix. Pac-12 conference champion, they're playing out at the Rose Bowl. Big 12 conference champions in Dallas. And, and you can just continue to go on up the map. But that seems ex- exactly what you're talking about the conference affiliation to the bowls makes a whole lot more sense here um, than it has so far in the playoff, how we have it currently. I think it just gets tough with the rotation because sometimes you won't have the cotton bowl in the rotation. So then where does the big 12 go? Fiesta. It's not really that great. No. New I Orleans. Just, I mean, I wonder if it's not, I wonder if it's not rotated and that goes back to your point of, of who gets pushed out. But to me, that would be the, the first four locations are probably the same every single year for that one through eight matchup. I'm going to have to write this down to kind of think it through. But that <laughs> would make sense. You've got, you've got four locations that are constantly going to host the higher-seeded conference champion. Um, and that, that part's easy. What you do after that um, for the final four teams, I think, complicates it. But you could go back to either of those locations for another game. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, well, uh, I mean, the way to get to the playoffs and the way to win the playoffs is really through recruiting. Um, and so a uh, pretty interesting article that comes out every year from 247 is the blue chip ratio. And really just breaks down the teams that have more four and five star players than two and three star and unranked players. And so uh, these rankings are pretty telling because basically the national championship uh, team has come from uh, this list every single year since recruiting rankings have started way back in the early 2000s. And so uh, there are, I think, what, 16, maybe a little more than 16. There might be 18 teams on this list. And uh, OU ranks just behind Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, Clemson, and LSU, they have 66% of their roster as four- and five-star players here. Uh, Corbin, you've seen the list here. Uh, what stands out to you as far as teams that are on this list and where OU stands amongst the teams on this particular uh, blue-chip ratio list? Yeah, I looked at it, and I just my first thought was like, yeah, sounds about right. You know, like that's – Everything we're seeing on the field as far as success, who's being crowned the national championship, it 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 all adds up to this. Um, I'm trying to see if there's anybody that surprises me. Texas should surprise me with the lack of success, but we all know they recruit the hell out of everybody. Um, so that's never been the issue there. Um, even a team like USC, man, that just that just goes to show you how prime of a college athletic department that should be on the football front usc hasn't really been that relevant in the past i'll be safe in say five years it's probably even been been longer than that and they're still in this top 16 bracket of how heavily they recruit um so that i mean the talent if, if you're usc it's getting to the point where it's similar to texas like you're in a prime location you have a 
big brand. You can recruit the West Coast like nobody else can over there. And yet you just can't kind of put it together. Um, so USC, like it shouldn't be surprising if they're on their list, but like it kind of was just due to their, their lack of success. Um, I think Penn State was a little surprising to me. I know they recruit well, but I didn't, I didn't think they were in that 56% category. But no, all in all, especially those first top eight to 10 teams, it was like, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the only teams that have a shot every single year. Yeah, OU's at 66% of the roster at that blue chip ratio. Top list is Alabama, 84%, followed by Georgia, 80%, Ohio State at 79%. And that feels like such a big gap between OU and that level. But then you look one spot beneath those top three, Clemson at 67%. So only a 1% difference between OU and Clemson. And I, you know, I don't think anyone out there discounts Clemson's chances at winning a national championship in any way. So I guess you look at that and you can say, Hey, I guess that part's kind of encouraging to say, OU's right there. Like we have the roster, we just got to develop it. And, of course, have a little luck come our way, and we're right there in that discussion. I'd be curious to compare these over the past like three or four years and just to see how it's ebbed and flowed. Because, like, in the grand scheme of things, Clemson's still very new to this whole thing, right? Like, they're sort of very new on the consistent national championship contender front. It's only been the past five or six years they've really had that kind of power. Um, so, I'm curious if some of that 67% as a lag right? The championship hasn't necessarily like fully transitioned uh, to get them up into that 70, 80% category. Um, But no, that's got to give you hope if you're an Oklahoma fan Um, and saying like, we are pulling in as far as the recruiting rankings are concerned, we're pulling in just as much as an LSU and Clemson who have both won recent national championships. So um, yeah, it's got to give you optimism and you know, we've all circled this year on the calendar for the past couple of years is the chance, the, the year we have a real shot at doing so. So we'll see if it comes to life or not. Yeah, I guess on the discouraging side, uh, right, you know, at the same level as OU is Texas and Florida with 66% of their rosters um, at four and five stars. And neither of those teams have won a conference championship in about a decade. And sure. I mean, yeah, they have proximity and, and, and huge fan bases and everything, um, but it just kind of shows the struggle that OU has an uphill battle. Um, uh, there was another great article that came out uh, earlier today from the athletic about recruiting out of state prospects and how OU and Notre Dame typically had led the way for that. But now it's like everybody, Alabama's recruiting out of state really well. So OU is having, you know, a tougher and tougher time to win those battles. And so I, I think once we break through and win the eighth national championship, that's, that's seriously going to help us uh, probably get above that 70 mark, hopefully. And as the recruits from the state of Oklahoma get better, you know, you know who you are, people out there that love that. <laughs> but uh, I think that'll certainly help too, because that's one way that really helps Ohio State stand out. Is they've got so many guys right there in their backyard. Yeah, yeah. It's just you just got to go out and do it. Um, and I do think you know the eliteness of what Oklahoma has been recruiting, especially on the defensive side of the ball lately, has really only happened in the past two or three years. And so there's still, I think, a lot of that the roster might be better than what this shows just because we're kind of in a transition mode of actually recruiting elite talent specifically on the the defensive side of the ball. So that number should continue to go up regardless of what happens this year. That number should go up just because the defense is starting to fill out um, the way the offense has for the past, you know, five, six, seven, eight years. Exactly. And one of the ways that 
you know, the, the coaches are trying to fill out that roster is through a pretty big recruiting weekend uh, here, which is the champion barbecue. Uh, that's, I guess, getting started tomorrow and a ton of guys coming in uh, from both the 2022 class and the 2023 class. We've got a total of 13 rivals, 250 guys just from the 22 class alone. Uh, and then a couple five stars on the 23 class. Um, Corbin, you've seen the list of all different visitors. Is there any particular name that stood out to you? Because for me, I didn't really see one guy that was like, that's the guy I'm focusing on. No, when you have that many highly rated guys, um, it's hard to put your focus on one. Obviously, the quarterback position is on the forefront of everybody's minds. The fact that Malachi Nelson is coming in from California, five-star quarterback, I believe the number one ranked quarterback in the 2023 class, him and Arch probably go back and forth depending on where you're looking. Um that obviously sticks out because the quarterback kind of does build the foundation, especially when you've got that type of rating, the number one besides your name at the quarterback position. That just kind of seems to hold more weight um, when it comes, especially early in a class. And he's set to decide next month, all signs point towards Oklahoma being that decision. Uh, so hopefully there's a, a wink and a nudge, you know, by the end of the weekend that things are all squared away there between him and Lincoln Riley. But no, Adam, you spoke on, I mean, in 2022, there's 19 official visits. Um, eight of those are rivals to 50 guys. There's seven unofficial visits. Five of those are rivals to 50 guys. And then you look to 2023, you've got 17 unofficial visitors uh, in that class, three five stars, 10 of them uh, in the rivals 100, uh, which is just crazy to think about. Um, and I think Josh McQuestion from Scoop today said on his podcast that there are only two people that are uh, rated with below four stars. Um, and so you think of that many people come to Norman with that much talent, regardless of how many commitments you get right now, like that's going to build some momentum um, heading into the, the summer. And um, hopefully, you know, you can convince these kids that Norman's home for them. Yeah. I mean, there's so many big time guys that it's hard to see which one really stands head and shoulders above the others because they're all so great. Um, and then, the one position that normally you do, like you mentioned with Malachi Nelson, the quarterback, it almost feels like the worst kept secret that he's going to be committing to OU here in about a month. Yep. You know, it's a knock on wood. Hopefully everything goes well in the, uh, the visit this weekend, but he canceled his visit to Clemson. So there's really no other competitor. It feels in a lot of ways like uh, the Caleb, Caleb Williams situation from a year ago. Uh, so like partly because of that, I don't think anyone like really stands out to me. And also partly because I'm a little disenchanted with French, uh, with uh, recruiting just because of the way things have gone down, Tristan Lee and Kamar Wheaton. But um, <laughs> just the way that, you know, I've been burned so long, uh, you know, last year, I think was kind of like, okay, I got to take a step back and not take it as seriously and get too excited, or at least in my mind, think that any type of, commitment or leaning is really anything solid um so if the, they choose the july, us, the july 4th fireworks let you down last year <laughs> <laughs> well that was that was the one that actually like stuck uh was caleb williams well, and there was supposed it, to be like six of them at one time right like yeah it was yeah huge day yeah i mean that's always how it gets hyped up is like yeah you know after caleb williams commits there's going to be like six other five stars going to commit within days and then like nothing happens for weeks yep. so yep. uh but uh hopefully we get some good news um i will take it all with a grain of salt but i think certainly we will see some uh, commitments 
from this weekend, even if it's not, you know, within the next 24, 48 hours, I think there will be some seeds planted that will eventually uh, become fruitful later on down the road. So uh, we'll wrap things up tonight with a little bit of a fun topic. Uh, I know everyone's favorite barbecue place in Norman is typically going to be Ray's. Uh, Corbin, is there any doubt in your mind that that Ray's is the best barbecue in Norman or or is there any type of competitor that uh, comes to mind there? Um, I mean, I haven't been back to Norman in a couple of years now, so I'm not sure I'm the most educated person. Uh, I think it's probably say Lincoln Riley's barbecue is probably not in the running based on <laughs> we saw on, uh, on Twitter a few months back. Uh, so hopefully barbecue this weekend's a little bit better. Um, but no, it's, I don't know. You tell me you're the one, you know, a little more familiarity is someone competing with Ray's now. Uh, have you ever been to Vans pick stand? I have been to Vans. I think once or twice. Okay. So I not, thought it was better. You thought it was better? Yeah. Okay. See, I, thought, I, I thought Ray's was. Oh, you thought Ray's was better. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I felt like uh, Vans has some better sides, but you don't really go to a barbecue place for the sides. Ooh. So I, I disagree with you there. The sides are just important to me in the barbecue realm. Okay. You're, you're maybe changing my mind again here, <laughs> but um, I, I don't know. I feel like Vans gets a little bit overlooked. It's on the East side of town. So it's a little harder to get to for most people. Uh, Ray's is right there. So close to campus and everything. Uh, but really I think the one that is a little bit underrated and is certainly newer to the scene is the meeting place, which is right mm -hmm. off of main street. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to go there. Mm -hmm. It's more of a sit down spot. Um, but really their specialty dish that I go for every time is the, the piggy Mac, uh, Mac and cheese, pulled pork, uh, barbecue sauce. You can't beat it. It's terrible for you. Uh, but that's what makes good barbecue. <laughs> so what are your, like, if you're going to go get barbecue, the two or three sides that you have to get every time you, you go get barbecue. I feel like it's, it's Mac and cheese. Yep. And then it has to be something fried, uh, probably French fries. I, I feel like French fries is pretty basic, but yeah, I mean, I'm, a fr I'm fried okra. So fried you're okra, okay. fried, yeah. but yeah, I'll do fried okra. Um, and those, those two are always the must. Anything outside of that is just bonus. How do you feel about hush puppies? There's a time and place for them. But when I think hush puppies, I'm thinking like, I'm at like Long John Silver's. Right? So you're like, thinking seafood. Okay. I mean seafood. Yeah. Yeah. So for me growing up in uh, North Carolina, hush puppies is a pretty big barbecue side. Interesting. So uh, does that take the place of cornbread? Yeah. I mean, cause it's typically, there might be some corn in the hush puppies. Sure. Um, Although I don't really feel like cornbread is that big of a barbecue side, even here in you know, Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it feels like there needs to be some bread of some kind, but I guess if you have something fried, uh, even like at Ray's, for example, you've got your, your beer battered type of fries. That's, yeah. that's pretty bready there. So um, I guess that works. Baked beans. Occasionally I'll go for that. Put a little, little bacon in there. Yeah. Uh, I might do that. Um, I don't know if this is considered a side necessarily as much as a, of a main dish, but give me some like burnt ends, some bacon burnt ends. Yep. Um, I might be cheating there. I think that's more of a are main you a, dish. Are you a coleslaw person? I am not. Okay. Fair enough. It's hitting. Is there, is there anyone out there that's a coleslaw person? I like coleslaw. Okay. I'll typically, like if I do like a, like a Carolina barbecue sandwich, typically it has like coleslaw on it and I'm all for okay. it. Okay. Um, but yeah, 
I was going to do pizza tonight, but now you might, might be out to go find a barbecue place because hey, this all sounds really good. You compromise, get some barbecue chicken pizza. There you go. Yep, my mouth's Problem watering. solved. <laughs> all right, awesome. Well, well, we'll end things there for the evening. And uh, we appreciate everyone listening. Uh, go ahead and jump on to Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star review if you made it this far. And uh, follow us and find us on Twitter at the Mainline Pod one We will see everyone again next week, including Tyler. He'll be off the golf course and back on the pod. So I appreciate everyone listening. We'll see you again next week.